In today's episode, which is part two of our dialogue with the remarkable Dr. Rick Hansen, we explore a variety of topics around enhancing our psychological and spiritual well-being. We look at the question of what are the qualities of heart and mind that are most essential to develop in order to live fully and effectively in our world, and how we might use these qualities to be able to serve better, be more loving and kind in our relationships, and to enjoy our lives to the full. We explore all these questions and more. Please join us. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. Have you found some things from your unique combination of neuroscience and psychology and contemplative practices to to speed progress? Because let's face it, contemplative practice is slow. Oh, the things I've said. Oh, yeah, yep. exactly right. Help yourself have the experiences that are useful for you. But once you get that song playing, in the inner iPod or jukebox, because I'm an old guy, turn on the recorder. And I just see that there are two reasons people don't do this in the, let's say, contemplative world broadly, which includes mindfulness. One, they just don't know how to. And that's a major reason. They literally don't know how to turn on the recorder and keep it recording. So for me, it's been bizarre, actually, that in the broad domain of, of the growth industry. I've been in the growth game like you, right, for a long time. And ranging from the clinical end of the spectrum all the way through, you know, the upper reaches of human potential. And it's just astonishing to me that those of us involved in the growth game don't have a theory of growth. We don't have a framework. A fourth grade school teacher, and I think there's a special place in heaven for all teachers, especially school teachers, they have a theory of learning. And they teach children how to learn. They actually focus on learning to learn in fourth grade, kindergarten, definitely by the time you get to high school. We don't have anything like that in the broad domain of social, emotional, motivational, somatic, spiritual learning in the broadest sense. It's a major, major deficit and shortfall and thus opportunity. Thus opportunity. We're really good at activating states. We're lousy at the systematic internalization of them as traits broadly. So teaching people how to do it, I think is really important. The second major impediment is a kind of dogmatic, deeply misguided, in my view, and contra what the great teachers have said, this kind of dogmatic emphasis on kind of inert, passive receptivity as the only legitimate stance in relationship to the streaming of consciousness such that any form of active releasing what's harmful and problematic, stressful, unwise, unwholesome, and so forth, letting go, any deliberate processes of letting go or any deliberate processes of letting in in the cultivation of what's beneficial are seen somehow as an anathema, as a taboo, as, as anti-true practice, which is simply to receptively drop into the ground of all in a non-dual way and stay there. Well, if you could do that, great. But most of the people who can do that are able to do that 
because they've had 30 years of working with their own minds <laughs> in active, wise efforts kind of way. So for those, those are two obstructions that I see. Yeah. yeah, and I think you're pointing to something very important there, which I hadn't is a new recognition for me, Rick. You're pointing to the fact that there's there are specific stages of intention. And we start with a highly conditioned minds which have this compulsive activity, yeah. which we can't stop. And even the attempt to try to stop it adds more activity. Mm -hmm. So that's the initial stage, and then one practices, one learns, and eventually develops a second stage of capacity for more allowing. I think what you're saying is that's where most teaching ends. But there are two stages beyond that that I think you implied. One is once one has the capacity for not compulsively interfering, then one can choicefully and consciously navigate or guide one's own mind and being. And then perhaps beyond that, ah, what you alluded to at the end, the possibility that that guidance becomes so automated that one truly just can open to a radical non-doing. And mm. when there's non-doing, yeah. then the self-construct and world construct dissolve, and one simply dissolves into or experiences oneself as united with the all. And it's not that one is doing anything, it's the universes or the Tao or the flow or God oh, is acting through one. And so you, I think you've just clarified stages there that I don't think have, have been so carefully distinguished before. I appreciate that. And you're a scholar of this territory. On a good day, I attempt to be scholarly, but I would never describe myself as a scholar. On a good day, I try to be scientific, but I would not describe myself as a scientist. I'm a methods guy. I'm a clinician. I'm a practitioner. So with that said, you're, I'm sure, familiar with the Tibetan uh, phrases, uh, the saying, gradual cultivation, sudden awakening, gradual cultivation. And I also think about this fantastic teaching of, from Suzuki Roshi, for me fantastic at least, that you're probably aware of too, in which he said, I'm not so sure there are enlightened beings. I am sure there are enlightened moments. And so we're attempting to become increasingly accessible to enlightened moments and increasingly lived by them over time. The other metaphor, which I've learned about only recently, I suspect you've known for a long time, is this notion from... Bodhidharma, maybe, that practice is like a wagon with two wheels. I think of this as the wagon of awakening, the two-wheeled wagon of awakening. And one of the wheels is gradual developmental change, in which we truly become less and less neurotic. We heal our traumas. We're less wounded. We're less afflicted. We're less reactive. We acquire skillfulness. We acquire dispositional qualities. We cultivate. We engage bhavana in a deliberate kind of way. That's one of the major wheels. Alongside it is this other wheel, which is the felt recognition of original nature already. Both are deeply important. And myself, I lived most of my life of practice, the first 30 years probably, with an intuition of the second wheel. But predominantly and overwhelmingly, I'm a steady eddy, grinded out kind of guy. So I've been working that first wheel. Rum, rum, rum. Shoulder to one. them. You do? Okay, good. Good. We, we should have a toy store. Strivers are us or something like that. 
And it's really lately, and it's also consistent with, with my appreciation of the Buddhist tradition, which in the Theravadan roots of original Buddhism, there's a primary focus on that first wheel. I, I think of Theravadan Buddhism as kind of like engineering, <laughs> you know, well-specified problem, well-specified procedures for solving that problem. Thank you very much. It's great. Good foundation. Then with the Mahayana, we have much more emphasis on the second wheel of original nature, Buddha nature, bodhicitta already, ground, ground of all, rest and ground, non-dual. And of course, we find that emphasis elsewhere, Vedanta and other traditions too, including the indigenous people, first people traditions who talk about just the oneness of, of everything. Okay. So I've been turning to that second wheel more and more and more. We need both wheels. The point I was kind of making is that these days, especially in a lot of circles, in the mind, in mindfulness circles and non-dual circles, even the mindfulness-infused therapies, I find a certain dogmatic emphasis on the second wheel that resists the notion of deliberate efforts of one kind or another out of the fears of those efforts driving egotism or promoting dualism, rather than appreciating them as that intermediate vehicle of the raft the Buddha talked about, that we engage deliberate effort initially until over time nothing leaves, right? We don't need to engage deliberate any effort anymore. As you said in that fourth stage, we're just fully landed and present in the divine or in the ultimate ground of all or in the nature of the ground of all. But it took a lot of work to get there. Yeah, it takes a lot of work to become who we always already were. Mm -hmm. Darn. <laughs> you pointing to something which has been a, a con for me in practice, uh, Rick, and that is, and this goes back to me a long way, the very first meditation retreat I ever went on was with Ram Das, and he ah. said, balance is a magic word in contemplative mm -hmm. practice. And you're pointing to the importance of balance. Yeah. But both these emphases are important. Uh, yeah. One of the beautiful metaphors from Tibetan Buddhism is climbing up a mountain of realization using all one's practices while opening to the view from above, which encompasses it all and recognizes it's all here. It's Fantastic. a very beautiful image. So you mentioned balance is really important. What do you see as some of the other really crucial qualities of heart and mind that essential mm -hmm. to cultivate for a full life, a life well lived? Well, very sweet. Uh, what is central there is this fundamental quality of being kind to yourself, of being on your own side, being for yourself regarding your own suffering as consequential, mattering, uh, appreciating your one wild and precious life, as Mary Oliver put it. That fundamental stance, which might seem so obvious, perhaps, to you or to me or to John, let's say, or to others, for many people is, is not there. The pilot light is out. And so other people, a therapist, a teacher, a, a friend, can draw that person, let's say, into more beneficial ways of being for a bit of a time, but they don't land because the person doesn't really care that much about their own suffering. They may care deeply about others, but they don't they don't really have that kind of sweetness and kindness for themselves. And I, I think that there are three things that people can engage that promote that. One is a principled recognition that it's okay. And in fact, it's actually moral to 
include yourself among, quote unquote, all beings who deserve decency and kindness and care. Second is a compassionate quality that doesn't leave out your suffering in the empathic recognition of the suffering of all beings again. So self-compassion. And third aspect of this feeling of kind of being for yourself is more muscular. It has a muscular sense that, okay, life has whacked me hard. Okay, the past is the past. Okay, I don't know what to do, but hurumph, I'm going to you know, lean in and try to do something for myself here, if only inside my own mind. So those are factors, I think, of this fundamental stance of a kind of caring about the preciousness of your life itself. So I think that's an important one. Rick, we're maybe Roger too, were there individuals who uh, living or dead who sparked something with you as either as a teacher or a role model or an exemplar of what it means to be a good man or more fully awake or a better Mm. human being that you can point to and said, yeah, they helped light that fire in my heart. And I want some of that, whatever it is. That's a deep one. Well, I'll give you a twofer here. So Joseph Goldstein, for example, is someone, he's a pretty pretty well-known American mindfulness teacher, I suspect he'd describe himself in that way, fairly. A scholar, wonderful being. He was in a, he was teaching a small workshop I was in a long time ago, and it was about releasing the sense of self, quite deep. And I came up to him at a break and wanted to relay to him a kind of a breakthrough experience I'd had, partly for the ego gratification of being recognized, partly where we started here, and also to check it, which I think is really important, to check our growth and have it affirm so that we know we're still on the path. So I told him what I was experiencing, and he nodded, yes, that's right. And then he smiled and said, keep going, keep going. And he's clearly someone who has kept going. And that would be a third quality I would add to my response to Roger, things I've seen that really seem to matter, you know, balance in the sense of working both wheels of the wagon of awakening in a deliberate way. Second, that kind of sweet, tender, supportive quality of being on your own side. And the third is persistence. Perseverance furthers, right? As the I Ching says routinely, just hang in there keep going. Don't quit. Keep going. So he's been an exemplar. Thich Nhat Hanh, for me, probably the most profound living teacher I have. To me, he's an incredible exemplar of embodied wisdom with incredible practice. You know, when you're with someone who four sentences in, you start to feel your mind. I call it sublimating, which is the, you'll probably know, the movement from a solid to a gas, like Dry ice just goes from solid to gas. When you start to feel like your mind <laughs> turns to gas in the presence of a teacher, well, you figure they've they've got some real game. So Thich Nhat Hanh has that quality, and and I, I think of the description of him to paraphrase. I think from Richard Baker Roshi, Thich Nhat Hanh as a combination. It's kind of a a cloud, a butterfly, and a bulldozer that combination. There's a related saying from the Dhammapada and the Buddhist tradition that one is truly wise, not who can recite the scriptures, but one who is truly wise is peaceable, friendly, and fearless. 
the last one, fearless, really. And I think that speaks also to our political moment as well and so forth. So together, I would say. Tara Brock, Christina Feldman has been a major teacher for me kind of early on. Tara for me also is someone who really is just deeply realized actually. And her most recent book, by the way, Trusting the Gold is a real gem about appreciating original nature in very down to earth and accessible kinds of ways. She too, and, and that lovingness in her, I think if in my own journey, insight and virtue have been pretty there early on, but to move more into what you very sweetly acknowledged early on, lovingness and being lived by love, being shattered open by love and lived by love in the fragments of life. Wow. That's, <laughs> she really embodies that for me, and that's been an important development for me as well over the last decade or so. Yeah. Beautiful. And I have one very brief thing. I was, I was so struck by what you said about the definition of the truly wise person. I started writing, and then I forgot the third character. It was peaceable, friendly, and what? Peaceable, friendly, and fearless. Fearless. All right. Okay. Well, I guess I'm not truly wise. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> well, moments. We could have moments. Have and, moments, right. <laughs> yes. And if I could just forgive me for jumping in, but, you know, I, I think, too, about the mosaic of reality and then we have the mosaic of mind broadly our consciousness which relates to the in the metaphor mosaic of the nervous system the neural substrates of consciousness as having many tiles like many little windows mm -hmm. and even if we're afflicted in many of them there always are some of those windows some of those tiles that are open to the infinite or that are actually okay even in a simple way like the feeling of in this moment at least there's enough air to breathe Right. And so we can be peaceable and fearless. You can be fearless in many of those tiles, even if some of those other ones are flashing red. Yeah, that's beautiful. And our natural tendency, and I guess it's probably an example of what you would call the, the Velcro of negativity, is that if there's one negative thing, facet of awareness or mind that's flashing, we tend yeah. to focus there and forget yeah. all the other things that are functioning just fine and how graced we are in this moment in so yeah. many, 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 many ways. So That's true. And uh, recognizing that wider field helps us be more effective in speaking truth yeah. to power and cleaning up the mess and addressing real things. Yeah, exactly. People think that, oh, if you open to what's beneficial and useful, you become flabby, lazy, unmotivated, and a narcissistic jerk. When usually, not always, but usually, we actually become more generous yes. and resourced and yes. capable of sustained action toward the common good as we deepen felt sense. We build out this unshakable core of resilient well-being inside ourselves. Yeah, and that's a beautiful example of the fact that, and let me just summarize what you said, basically that we don't trust ourselves. We what think a good we, way to put it. And the way I would put it is, we believe we ha need our neuroses in order to be loving and kind and effective. And <laughs> that was one of the most powerful, quickest insights that occurred for me in, when I was in psychotherapy. I remember my mm. first therapy session, I was having this, it was really fascinating and I was feeling good. And then I started to get scared and out of my mouth burst the words, but if you cure me, I'll never amount to anything. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, oh, we have our neuroses because at some level we believe we need them. Yeah. 
And we are willing to inflict suffering on ourselves in order to ensure that we do what seems right. Yeah. And that's a very, that just flips the whole perspective on a lot of things. Yeah. I love your framing in terms of trust. Yeah. Uh, Self-trust yeah. is so important. Yeah. And our lives can be spent wrestling with our own minds. It's, it's both trusting oneself and trusting trusting one's mind is one of the great gifts of life mm. and to realize that not only can we trust our own minds but when allowed to be if if we open to them if we trust them our minds are self-healing self-actualizing self-transcending it's like that's they're built they're wired towards growth and healing and transcendence and awakening and that just flips so much of the perspective. It's just tragic to realize that 99.99% of humanity is walking around scared of their own minds. Right. And what might live in the basement? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it is true. We do, all, of course, all have our traumas, our pains, our you know, secrets, peccadilloes and sins, etc. But we believe that if we open ourselves, let go our defenses, those will come out and overwhelm us. And mm. so many people, I'm sure you've experienced it, all of us have experienced that in our, both in ourselves and our teaching is, you know, there's that first initial opening and then this, then painful memories and things start to flood up and people immediately close down. And the metaphor I've found really helpful is of a opening a, a faucet of an oil that hasn't, of a pipe that hasn't been used in years. The first what comes out is gunk, and so you want to just oh, close that off. But if you let it flow, then not long after, pure, healing, life-giving water flows. And it's the same with our minds. Yeah. So I think you just want to emphasize the importance of what you're saying about that, mm. kind, of, that kind of trust. That's beautiful. And the water itself was always originally pure. Very nice. That's yeah. right. Yeah. I have one one pressing question, if I could. What do you do? What is your practice? I mean, you're a prodigious writer. You're obviously manifest a spiritual awakening, awaken energy and love. And I mean, you've accomplished a lot. So what is on an average day? What do you do? What is your morning routine or what is your practice? <laughs> First and foremost, don't be an asshole. <laughs> yes, that's kind of central. You know, that's pretty, a tough one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's kind of, yeah. Well, let's see. I wake up. I, I usually meditate. Uh, typically, I aim for forty-five minutes. Sit. Not always, but pretty there. Then, after a little bit of food and whatnot, I try to do some exercise, and then have a real breakfast and get to work and. You know, over the day, my wife and I sit together in the evening briefly, often. So that kind of bookends the day, if you will. And I would say that, I mean, I I work, I write, I have projects. I'm trying to disengage from some things and clear space for others, and try to generally lower the task demand that I lived with for many, many years for different reasons. And so I'm exploring what it's like to not have a to-do list or not have such a long to-do list every day. So that's there. In terms of ongoing practice, 
I think that's part of what you're asking me. Headline practice is to really pay attention to subtleties of craving, the subtle process. And this is a sequence that, that Roger and probably the rest of you know well, the Buddha laid out. It's very psychological. It's very neuropsychological that moves from, in modern language, stimulus, something's happening, a sensation, a sight, a sound, somebody says something to you, email comes in, you have a thought, you have a memory, stimulus. Then there's the hedonic tone of the stimulus as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. I would add an emerging fourth hedonic tone, I think, being in, in humanity as a sense of things as relational, meaningfully distinct from pleasure and pain, and or neither. Not so much that we're not moving towards something or moving away from something because it's unpleasant, but we're abiding in relationship with something. Okay. In any case, we have the hedonic tone, right? Stimulus, pleasant, unpleasant, and then there's a response. And right there between the hedonic tone, we have little control over that initial hedonic tone in the moment. Over time, we can regulate ourselves and train ourselves and shift our circumstances to the extent possible that will affect the hedonic tone that arises dependently upon the stimulus. But at the point the hedonic tone is there, it's there. It, you don't like it. It's unpleasant. You do like it. It's pleasant. Yum, yum. Then what happens? Can we simply rest in the liking or disliking? Can we simply rest in that without moving into wanting in the problematic sense of drivenness, aversion, freezing, and other flavors of craving? Tracking that space. And this is not an original thought, but really tracking that, that, that space between stimulus and response in real time and subtleties of craving in the body um, is a real central practice for me. A, you know, a very granular mindfulness in real time. Granular in terms of the temporal scale, very quick events, you know, quarter second events in the mind, and granular in the larger mosaic of consciousness, like all the little things that are cooking there. And some of the hallmarks I've really tried to start paying attention to are the feeling of pressure and contraction. Pressure and contraction are the embodied signals of craving in various forms. A sense of not pressure, even as you're dealing quickly with important things. Really interesting to increasingly establish yourself in that or establish in you. And also the sense of non-contraction, rather to sustain a sense of openness and a recognition of openness and possibility and the whole, even as you coalesce, let's say, or cohere around some kind of functional response, including sometimes to a threat, like to be able to be there. That's very central. That's very central. And, and partly it comes from this humble recognition of the, of the power of the, of the negativity bias, that aspect of the force, as it were. So that's very real. And then especially, yes, definitely taking in the good along the way, you know, neuro appreciating the importance of helping these beneficial qualities to land so I can move as Milarepa pointed to from nothing stayed to nothing left, right? And then last, really for me, major focus is a sustained felt sense of the ground of all 
the one tissue, the one field, the one everything in which all patterns proceed emptily. <laughs> they're there. The thoughts are there. Trees are there. But they're unfolding emptily in the ground of all. And to really try to have a fairly ongoing feeling of being in touch with that, that's, that's a real growing edge for me. The first two are more present and habitual. They're more psychological. They're more first wheel. This ongoing feeling of more and more of the little windows and the mosaic of consciousness being popped open all the time, right? More and more of that. So the light that's always already there shines through more fully. That's a real ongoing practice. And one thing that really supports that is definitely love, open-heartedness, recognizing the extraordinary generosity of the arising moment continuously. You know, the display of the unfolding of everything, which includes many horrible things, but the ongoing generativity of the arising. It's a kind of love, the endless arising of everything. To try to rest in that as much as possible. Beautiful, yeah. Um, Rick, you mentioned something before, which is actually an element of your practice, and that is your being with teachers. And you gave a very potent description of your time with Thich Nhat Hanh, of, of just this very rapid opening, I don't know quite what metaphor to put on it, but something, some powerful thing, which, and one can look at that in various ways, but traditionally it's been looked at in terms of, quotes, transmission. Mm-hmm. That there is a transmission yeah. of, probably in our contemporary language, a state of consciousness from a teacher to a student, an evoking of mm. the qualities of heart, mind, the virtues that the teacher has cultivated. From your unique perspective uh, with your contemporary psychology and neuroscience, how do you understand transmission? Because it's such an important element of so many traditions. It's the Mm. basis of the guru-disciple relationship of many forms of teaching. So I'd love to hear your take on that. I think there are kinds of transmission that are really considered outside of the natural frame of the Big Bang universe. Shaktipat, you know, mind-to-mind transmission, maybe a transmission in the Zen tradition. There's something about that, I'll just call it exotic, supernatural, kapow, magical, something. And I think a genuinely scientific attitude recognizes what's outside the bounds of science. And as you know, the scientific saying, the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Really important to recognize that. That said, acknowledging that, which is sort of somewhat above my pay grade, within the natural frame, I think there are different aspects of this. I think there are subtle energies that are natural and yet outside the can of science so far that we just pick up when we're in the field of certain people. We're also very uh, hardwired to be empathic and empathically attuned. And I think we drop into empathic attunement in ways that are understandable in the language of empathy and and attunement and attachment and things like that uh, and and the underlying neurobiology of it. And then I think there's an element that's been extremely important for me, which I'll use an example from my background as a rock climber. So when you use mountain metaphors, I, of course, ding, 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 (laughs) 
<laughs> lights me right up. I would watch climbers who were better than me, right? Study people who are better than you. So they were better than me. And I would, I would no problem with that. They were human geckos on the rock. And I'd go, ooh, what would it be like to move like that, to shift my weight in that way, or to bring that quality to it, or to bring that mental quality that they brought to it? They kept going because they were willing to fall because they knew falling would be safe. They weren't constricted by the fear of falling. Okay. And then I would kind of reverse engineer. I would model what's it like to be them. And I would help those qualities stabilize in myself. To, I would start to try to feel them as states and then help them become learned as traits. In this way, we can look at people who are farther along in practice than we are in some regards. And for example, I do that with you, Roger. Here we are having dinner at some nice Indian restaurant and there's a quality you have, perhaps. I'll recognize it. I'll kind of differentiate it in my mind. Oh, there's some kind of like utter stability of a window into vastness, which you, you really do have. Oh, I'd like more of that. <laughs> that looks pretty good. I value that. I honor that. I respect that. I want to feel that. Well, how does he do that? What's involved with that? What would that feel like in my version of that? Can I get even just the beginning of a taste of it and appreciate what tastes good about it? So I'll be motivated to keep going with that. Oh, in, in that way, we can see people who are farther along. They're more sustained in some quality farther up the path, including sometimes globally. And oh, and then we can kind of reverse engineer a little bit. What's within reach? Some of it's not within reach yet. I can respect it and that, nope. <laughs> I can understand it. I don't feel it yet. Okay, good. But certain other things, oh, they're kind of within reach. And then we can help them stabilize and, and become here. And then we increasingly grow in that direction. And I think that's another way of reflecting on transmission that is, to me, respectful. It honors development and also is responsible because it says it's not just that they're up there on the pedestal, but that they've trained themselves, they've developed themselves, or they were just naturally talented in certain ways that I need to develop more as a skill. They were naturally talented, but I'm going to work at it. And so it becomes more natural to me eventually over time. You know, there's a sense of responsibility for it in our relationship to the transmissions that are coming to us. Beautiful. So that adds an intentional element to the idea of transmission, because usually transmission is thought of, as you've alluded to with so many practices, as a passive process. Yeah. But what you're pointing to is that there are skillful ways of working with, with transmission, or even in cases where one wouldn't necessarily call it a a teacher-student relationship, but just yeah. anyone has anyone you're with has some qualities we don't have, and yeah. turning each each meeting into an opportunity to open to those qualities and and just reflect and see if we mm. might do something to cultivate them. That's a very beautiful perspective. Yeah, Rick, you've been practicing for a long time. You've been researching these topics, creating this field of neurodharma for quite a few years now. You know, a certain stage of life, usually it's described as midlife, one stops emphasizing so the years one has accumulated and starts looking at, okay, how many years do I have left? 
and you've implied this in some of the things you said, trying to clear your desk a little, be more selective in what you take on. What are your personal and professional priorities for this next phase of life? Hmm. Well, if I could add a fourth hallmark factor of a life of practice that I was just experiencing between us here a moment ago to my list of three so far, it would be joy in the way. Mm. There's phrases, you know, the sweet joy of the way, to paraphrase a, a saying in the Pali Canon in, in early Buddhism, take gladness or find gladness in your goodness. You know, the sweet joy, find joy in the way, the joy keeps you going. Yeah, it's important to move away from afflicted states, but it's really powerful and sustains motivation over the marathon. Motivation for the marathon of long life of practice is to really find joy in the way, because there is joy in the way. There is great joy in the way. Well, I have a book or two in me left, and I do want to highlight in the late stage of my career the really central importance in various phrases of self-directed neuroplasticity, of taking in the good, of cultivation, of moving from states to traits. And if I could frame it a certain way, for those of us who practice, we engage the mind. I think there are these three foundational practices, like a three-legged stool of metta, sati, and bhavana, loving, knowing, and growing. And metta and sati, uh, loving and knowing, uh, loving kindness, compa compassion, and mindfulness are very well understood. But the forgotten stepchild of so many people and so many practices from clinical, hardcore clinical psychology up to esoteric contemplative traditions really tend to leave out deliberate bhavana. Passive bhavana, yeah. You know, you're the receptacle or you're the sponge, but active self-development is something that's really been left out. And I, I really do want to emphasize that in the twilight <laughs> of my career. That said, I'm extremely worried about the world. I'm very hopeful about many things. I'm pessimistic about politics in America and probably globally, and I'm very pessimistic about the climate crisis. And if there were any way, shape, or form, I might have a contribution to make in the field of, it's really politics. If we have good process, there will be a good product. And our process of politics, of group decision-making, the allocation of resources, the management of power, the healing of injustice at the group level, that was forged in the crucible of hunter-gatherer bands groups of people who live together 40 or 50 or so, most of their entire lives. And in that framework, there were three conditions that were present that we're adapted to for healthy human group decision-making, otherwise known as politics. Three conditions being common truth, common welfare, and common justice. If you just think about what it's like to live together with 40 or 50 people, you can't hide <laughs> the chalupa. You, you know, it's clear who's sleeping with who, who's stealing things, who's trustworthy, whose word is good. It's common truth. And common welfare, your fates are bound together. And common justice. Yes, there tend to be status hierarchies, even in hunter-gatherer bands as we know of them. But eventually, if the leader is not effective, if the 
chief hunter is not skillful, if if uh, there's something corrupt about it, people leave, they walk away, or they whoop on them in the middle of the night. You can't escape the consequences. But once agriculture came in 10,000 years ago with the development of surpluses that enabled accumulations of wealth, which then fostered accumulations of power, which fostered more accumulations of wealth, then, boom, over the last 10,000 years, those three enabling conditions of healthy human politics have been completely blown away. And we have lived in the Game of Thrones pretty much ever since. So how to reestablish those conditions that do foster healthy human politics in countries with 330 million people or worlds with pushing, approaching 8 billion people altogether. That's a deep concern of mine and a deep interest of mine. I'm not a professional in that field, but it is some er it's an area where I'd love to have some kind of beneficial influence. So I welcome people like you and John and your whole team that are really engaged in the personal and the political, and the political as it impacts the personal. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Rick. Uh, is there anything you'd like to add? Gratitude for you all. It's great what you're doing. I think another, since I'm a list maker, <laughs> you know, it helps me kind of be organized amidst the chaos, right, or the proliferation of possibilities. A fifth factor for personal practice is playfulness. Mm. which of course includes curiosity. Mm. And uh, playfulness fosters neurotrophic factors, as you may know, that heighten, that make us receptive to enduring lasting change based on the experiences we're having at the time, to bring up a, a playfulness to them, a playfulness. And I think it's so important to preserve that kind of spunky, moxie spirit of playfulness that may have a childlike quality if only in, in the innermost temple of our minds, even while maybe we're living in situations where they've got the gold and the guns, and we need to put on a mask and hide behind that mask in the sanctuary of our innermost being, where we play, maybe with the innermost freedom in how we look at things. Ideally, much more outwardly. And one thing I've appreciated about you, Roger, is your inherent playfulness. I mean, you're such a scholarly, kind of august, kind of patrician person in your demeanor in some ways, and yet to learn about your background as a diver and a you know major playful person has been very sweet for me. So playfulness and preserving that spirit of rocking in the free world. May we all mm. keep rocking in the free world and expand the range of conditions and experiences in which we are free with beautiful. an open heart. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. John, anything to add? So deeply honored, Rick, your uh, your transmission here. I think if there is hope for us, it's going to be the cultivation of virtue and character and becoming better, kinder human beings. And you're terrific. I think you're already on the task of working on the things that you're concerned about through mm. what you're putting out in the world. And so it's, I'm very touched and really moved and very grateful. Thank you. Mm. I'm what? I'm so happy we had this time together. Yeah. I am, really. Yeah. I'm reminded of uh, something Carl Rogers, some, often regarded as the preeminent psychologist of the 20th century, said, he said, when I look out at the world, I despair. When I, when I meet individual people, I have hope. 
And it feels like this, this is what this feels like. We've talked about some very challenging topics, but it's also been a, a very hopeful and enjoyable discussion. So, Rick, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for all the good work you do in the world. Mm. Thank you for your creating this field of neurodharma and bringing together ancient wisdom and contemporary science. And thank you for the for the contributions you make in uh, in society. Your website is Rick Hansen, which is H O H A N S O N, rickhansen.net. And also you have a website for your Wellspring Institute for Neuroscience and Contemplative Wisdom. So Look up Rick Hansen. You'll find his books. They're all over the, over the web. So, Rick, thank you very much. It's been a wonderful gift to explore. Oh, with, thank you. With you. Triple bows. <laughs> Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation Podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.